we're in a study through Exodus chapter, uh, the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 10. So if you'll open up your Bible to that, I'd appreciate it. Exodus chapter 10. Um, I'm sure sure many of you guys heard about the uh, terrorist attack in Egypt this week. So um, uh, we know that a lot of Christians all over the world are being persecuted and and put to death um, for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there's more than 200 that that recently happened to in Egypt. So um, we want to remember... those who don't have the same freedoms that we have and live under the, the, uh, 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 a threat um, because of evil that's out there. And so I'm going to pray this morning. We're going to pray for the people in Egypt and, and for even some of the own terrorist stuff that's been going on in our own country. And, and uh, we'll read and, and study through chapter 10 together. Father, as we join together in your name, um, we ask God that you would speak to us, and that you would pour out your spirit upon this place, God, that we want to be with you. Uh, We want to know you more. Um, God, we want to be your children who go forth into this world as light into a dark place. Um, Lord, that we would um, honor you by what we do, by what we say, by how we live. And Father, as we come to you in prayer this morning, we want to lift up those in Egypt who are suffering as a result of this current terrorist attack. God, we know that these kinds of things are taking place all over the world, even in our own country. And God, for us, it's a a sign that um, your return is near and that um, we should be um, prepared. And God, as we study your word this morning and worship you, I pray you'd prepare us even more for that day, for that moment where we would be with you when you come to take us home. In the meantime, God, you tell us that those who are hurting those who are brokenhearted, that, you, that you're near to them, that you're a comfort to them. And often, God, you use your people, those who love you and love others, to be that comfort in those times of hurting and those times of grieving. And God, I pray that would be true again today, that you would send uh, many other believers to those who are in Egypt who have suffered and are suffering the loss of a loved one. And God, even as we recently, recently experienced kinds of tragedies in our own country and with the, a couple of weeks ago the stuff that went on in Texas and um, we pray God that you would be the comforter and if anyone here this morning is gr- grieving anyone here Lord is um, having difficulties with life I pray God that you would comfort them this morning she would encourage him this morning Lord, that you would remind him that you're for them and that you love them and nothing can separate separate us from your love in Jesus name we pray Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your son's sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So verse 3 Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or, verse 4, or else. 
Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and that they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field." Furthermore, the Lord said in verse 6, that they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's father have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then, verse 7, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do not yet, do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Um, guys, in, 19, in, in 1845, um, nearly half, this may seem a little bit out of context, but I'll, I'll bring it back around, I promise. In 1845, nearly half of all of the potato crops in Ireland were destroyed by a fungus. And that fungus rapidly spread throughout the whole country. And that staple crop, which had fed and sustained the small nation of Ireland of about 8 million people at that time, was devastated by this infestation, uh, infestation for the next seven years. It would go on. In fact, during those seven years, now keep in mind, the country was only 8 million people large, during that time, during those seven years, more than one million Irish people died from starvation and disease. And there were yet another million who were forced to abandon their farms and flee their homeland. And those seven years, which have become known as the Great Irish Potato Famine, was the reason for why my great-grandparents left Ireland, and came to the United States. One of the interesting things about being a citizen of the United States is that almost all of us have grandparents or great-grandparents who were not from here. And because of this, many of us have a story like this one that I just told you that links us back to our relatives and back to the country that they had immigrated from. And if you're like me, you hold on to these stories that have been handed down from one generation to the next with pride because they account for a heritage that helps to identify who we are today. But also because these stories are typically filled with accounts of heroism, accounts of those who fled opposition, those who overcome hardship, overcame hardship and adversity, and, and, and accounts that tell of amazing journeys that were made with the hopes of having a better life. And I point this out this morning because as we prepared to study through this next chapter, or I, I point this out this morning as we prepare to study through this next chapter, because in this chapter, specifically in verse 1 and 2, God tells Moses yet another reason for the plagues. He tells Moses that one of the other reasons for why he was using these mighty works, these signs and wonders of his, to set the Hebrew people free from their Egyptian bondage is so that they could be told to the generations that would follow. 
And like we talked about last week, this was just one of the many reasons for why God was striking Egypt with these mighty signs. But it's evident that in addition to proving that the gods of Egypt were false gods, and in addition to making himself known as the one true and living God to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people, we see that this Exodus account, which tells the story of God's deliverance, of God's redemption, and of God's salvation, was an important story that needed to be retold to every generation that followed. Because this story, alongside the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these stories accounted for a heritage, a heritage that would help future generations of Hebrew people to identify with who they were, God's chosen people. And in doing so, this heritage was to be a foundation for the nation of, nation of Israel's glorifying God, a foundation for the nation of Israel's worshiping God, and a foundation for the nation of Israel's serving God. Because these stories reminded them of who God is. They reminded them of who and what God had done for them and of God's promises that still remained. And as I point these things out, I think that we should realize that these stories, that the stories of where our ancestors have come from and what they went through to get here are not nearly as amazing or as important for us to pass on as a story that accounts our spiritual, our spiritual heritage, which tells of what God has done to deliver us, redeem us, and save us. And the awesome thing about our stories is that they are like this Exodus account. As they tell of how God defeated an evil ruler who oppressed us, Satan. As they tell of a mighty deliverer, Jesus, who did the works of God to save us. And they tell of yet a future hope and a heavenly inheritance that has yet been promised to us. And these are stories that we too, should pass on to the next generation as they are the foundation, guys, for why we glorify, for why we serve, and for why we worship our God today. As we look at this account in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, we see this command where God says, the reason why I'm doing this is that you may tell in verse 2, in the hearing of your sons and of your sons' sons, the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, this knowing of the Lord, and we know that was God's desire. And it is God's desire for all men to know him. And when God sent Moses at this time back before Pharaoh, or to Pharaoh, before he sent this eighth plague, the plague of locusts that we read about, we, we see that this demand, or the same demand, to let my people go that they may serve me was again delivered. And then another warning of what was going to come if Pharaoh refused was also given, this time with an or else. But in verse 3, we see something different, something that we have not yet seen God do or speak to Pharaoh. As God first asked Pharaoh in verse 3 this question of how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And truthfully, guys, that was a question that God asked each one of us 
in regards to our own spiritual heritage. That story of how we came to the Lord, how we came to serve Him, how we came to know Him, and why we worship Him. Because God came, looked into our hearts, and said, how long will you continue to resist me? How long before you will humble yourself before me? You know, and this question that God asked Pharaoh was, was the real question as it exposed Pharaoh's heart. And it, it revealed the real reason for why he had not and would not obey God's commands. It was an issue of his heart. And Pharaoh refused in spite of everything that God had revealed to him. See, we've talked about this. It wasn't an issue of not knowing. It wasn't an issue of, of, of the truth not being revealed. It was not an issue of the fact that Pharaoh really didn't know that the God of the Hebrews was the one true and living God. He did. It wasn't an issue of evidence. It's never an issue of evidence. It's always an issue of the heart, of a prideful heart. And Pharaoh refused in spite of everything that God had revealed to him because he was prideful. He was unwilling to submit to God's will and to God's ways, literally to God's lordship of his life. But like we read about last week, Pharaoh's refusal was only temporary. It was only temporary as God would have his way and Pharaoh would be made to bow his knee and confess with his tongue that God is the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, the fact that God even asked Pharaoh this question is significant. The fact that God asked Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, reveals the fact that God's desire is for all people to freely choose him. God's desire is for all people to choose him and humble themselves before him and receive, in turn, a blessing, a blessing of life that is lived in submission to God's will, rather than being humbled, rather than being humbled and receiving the discipline or the punishment that comes from the hardening of our hearts. Remember, Jesus said, or, or excuse me, in James chapter 4, Paul wrote, or the, excuse me, James wrote in the book of James, <laughs> chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, he said this, Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The Bible also tells us that God brings down those who are proud, and he exalts the humble. And so I think that this question that was asked to Pharaoh is a question that we should consider this morning. It's a question that we should allow to penetrate into our hearts this morning, how long will we refuse to humble ourselves before the Lord? Because the same prideful heart that keeps a person from exercising faith and accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior also keeps us today from doing what God has asked of us. In regards to the way we do or do not glorify God, serve God, and worship God. In other words, when we refuse to humble ourselves to God on a day-to-day -day basis, which we all do, in those moments, in those, in those times, with those things, we are really living for ourselves in a way that seems right to us. And when I consider this, I find true what Andrew, or Andrew Murray said when he wrote 
in his book, Humility, that the lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. Lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. So how long will we refuse to humble ourselves before the Lord in regards to our marriages, in regards to our finances, or by how we love our spiritual brothers and sisters, or by the way we treat unbelievers, or even by our unwillingness to forgive like we have been forgiven? I pray that not even one more day would go by and that we would leave here this morning today encouraged by whatever God is asking of us, whatever He's asking from us. Now after Moses and Aaron delivered this message and asked these questions of Pharaoh with this or else ultimatum that was spoken in verse 4, we see that they did not stick around this time for him to make another false promise or, uh, 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 of what he would do like what he had previously done. Yet upon their departure, we read in verse 7, if you look there, we read in verse 7 that the servants of Pharaoh, who were probably these officials who stood there in Pharaoh's courts and heard what Moses had said, they at this time began to openly question Pharaoh. And you know what? This would have been a very risky thing to do. It shows the desperation of the moment of the times. It was a desperate thing to do because Pharaoh ruled over all of Egypt as a god. And he answered to no man. But his pride and his continued resistance to God's demands had come at a great cost to Egypt and to the Egyptian people. And even though these servants at this time risked their lives by speaking in this way to Pharaoh, I'm sure they thought that they had nothing to lose as they believed that Egypt had already been destroyed. In light of this, we should be reminded of the fact that our pride and our sinful ways will even often come at a cost to others around us. You've heard it said we don't sin in a vacuum. That what we do in rebellion to God or against God's ways has a negative effect not only on our lives, but on the lives of those around us. And more often than not, it comes to those who we care about, those who we love. And when Pharaoh was confronted with the reality of how his hardness of heart had brought suffering to the nation of Egypt and to his people, we see at this moment a small willingness to relent, right? And in verse 8, we're told that Moses and Aaron were brought back again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go, verse 11 Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind, and on that 
on, on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought in the locusts. And the locusts went up over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. And there were, they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And then they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hell had left so that there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Then verse 16, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, it says, and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord and the Lord turned a very strong west wind toward the locusts away and blew them into the sea and took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. Now, in this section, in these verses, we see that, that it's no longer Moses or God asking the questions, it's Moses. And, and, and it's never, or it's, it's, it's Pharaoh, and it's, it's never a good place to be. And if you've had kids and you ask them a question or tell them to go do something and they reply with another question, it's usually not good, right? <laughs> and, and that's kind of the idea of what's going on here as Pharaoh was the one asking the question. But the, and, and in those moments, they ask a question as if they don't know exactly what we're asking them to do, but you know darn well that they know exactly what's been asked of them to do. And this, too, this question of who are the ones that are going was a question that Pharaoh already knew the answer for. He already knew the answer to. Because God had already told Pharaoh. God had already told Pharaoh that his command to let his people go was non-negotiable. It was a non-negotiable command. And that had been reiterated as Pharaoh had sought compromises already up to this point. And God was not about to negotiate this letting go of his people because the command to let the men go, let the women go, and let the children all along with the livestock go was what God had demanded. But in asking this question, we see that Pharaoh was once again looking for a compromise. He's looking to make a deal. And when Moses spoke in verse 9, we see that he rejected this compromise and Pharaoh became angry. He became angry. And it was clear that Pharaoh wasn't looking for clarity in regards to what God asked. Rather, he was still trying to have things his way and maintain control. And anytime we ask God a question in response to a command, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. God, did you really mean this? Or God, can I do this instead? And it's an issue of pride. It's an issue of control. Yet, Pharaoh's response to God's, to Pharaoh's response to question God's command rather than humble himself before God is something clearly I think that all of us have done or, or, and do. And, 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 and maybe something we're even trying to do right now in regards to an area of our life that is not being lived in submission to God's will. 
Maybe with that question of humbling ourselves before the Lord, when will we humble ourselves before the Lord? God's brought to your mind, to your remembrance, to your conscious a thing that's not right. That God says, how long are you going to continue in this way, in a way that seems right to you, in a way that's opposition to what I've commanded? How long before you humble yourself before me? And you know what the right thing is to do. We know what the right thing is to do. God's Word has made it clear. His Holy Spirit has spoken the truth to our hearts. And yet, even right now, we're sitting here like Pharaoh, and we're going, well, how much, God? All of it? Can I do this too? Does it have to be that? And we're still looking to maintain control. And maybe it's something we're doing right now and ultimately, it's a rejection of living in submission to God's will. But the reality of what we're trying to figure out, the reality of the compromises that we're looking to make is that it's the same, the Bible teaches us, as trying to serve two masters. It's the same as trying to serve two masters, which is not possible. And Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 6 when he said in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. There's no gray areas in regards to what God has commanded, what God has spoken, what God has asked, what God has put forth in our lives. God says this is how it's to be done, and it's either light or darkness at that point. And he says, therefore, if the light, if therefore the light that is in you darkness is darkness, how great is that darkness? The compromise isn't standing in a half-lit room. That's not how it works in regards to God's ways. And listen to what he says. Jesus, in explaining that, he goes, no one, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve the light, you can't serve the darkness. You can't be in the light, you can't be in the darkness. If you're in the light, it drives out the darkness. There's God's way, and then there's our ways. There's kingdom ways, and then there's the world's ways. And the two don't mix together. God's called us to be separate. He's called us to serve only him. And no one can serve two masters. Why? For he will either hate the one and love the other, or else will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And when Pharaoh was told here in these verses that, that he could not do what he wanted to do and still do what God wanted, we see that he despised God. And guys, in our own lives, when we're in that place where God's called us to turn away, called us to humble our hearts, called us to turn that area of our life over to him, to serve him, to worship him, and glorify him in that area of our life with whatever's going on, if we refuse to do so, if we look to make a compromise, more often than not, we'll come to despise God and his ways. Cannot serve two masters. And Pharaoh came to despise God. In fact, Pharaoh, in these verses, specifically in verse 10, he blasphemed the name of God when he said in verse 10, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. And what Pharaoh had really said, what he was really saying was this, in the name of God, in the God of the Hebrews, in the name of God, I will not let you take your little ones. Blasphemous. 
despising God. And as far as Pharaoh was concerned, that was the end of it. He had put his foot down. He had raised his fist. In the name of God, you will not leave with your little ones. I refuse it. And in verse 11, it tells us that at that time, Moses and Aaron were literally driven out from his presence. However, God, he had other plans in the name of God. God had other plans. Before long, Pharaoh would appeal once again for his deliverance and for relief. But before we move on, guys, there's something important here for us to look at. And I want to point out that what Pharaoh was willing to compromise is the same compromise. What, listen, what Pharaoh was willing to compromise is the same compromise that Satan is looking for us to make in regards to our families today. Remember, Pharaoh, we've talked about this, he's a picture He's a type of Satan, a picture of Satan. Remember, he was the God of Egypt. And today the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. And like Satan, Pharaoh was a liar and a murderer. He kept people in bondage. He hated the word of God and the people of God. And he did not want to let God's people go. So what did he do? He looked to compromise. And this time by allowing for the men to go and worship while the children remained behind. And like Pharaoh, Satan would have us exercise our faith before the Lord, our worship and our service to God, and leave our children behind in the world. Egypt being a picture of the world. Just, just leave your kids behind. You go and worship. You go and serve. You go and exercise your faith to God. But just leave your children in the world. Leave them here. And like Pharaoh, that's how Satan is. But you know what, guys? Faith involves the whole family. That's exampled over and over and over again in Scripture. Faith involves the whole family. And God's word makes it clear that the privilege and the responsibility of the husband and the father is to be the spiritual leader of his home. And to do so without compromise. And this means we never leave our children behind. And in doing so, we must lead with the same purpose, with the same conviction as Joshua, who said in Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we need to understand that this privilege and this responsibility does not go away just because our kids don't want to follow. Or because they've moved out and chosen to go another way. That doesn't move away the responsibility or the privilege that God's given to us. But you know what, if this is a case, if your kids don't want to follow, if they've gone on a different path, we must remember that our responsibility on our privilege is then an issue of a battle. It is. To battle for your kid's soul. To battle for their heart. And that battle is fought, and by the way, won. It is won. It is fought, and it is won by prayer. Through prayer. For our struggle is not against flesh. It's not against blood. 
But it is against the powers of this dark world, this Egypt that we live in today, and against the spiritual forces of evil. And any compromise, guys, it's clear from what we see here, any compromise by this example that is given to us and the spiritual picture that it gives us is that any compromise that leaves our children spiritually behind is a decision to just wave a white flag of surrender and let Satan have them. And I know that's not what God would have us do. Now, when Pharaoh said that he would not allow for the Hebrew people to worship in the way that God had commanded, he chose. Do you see this? He chose the plague. He chose the plague of locusts that, had, that he had been warned about rather than humbling himself before the Lord. And even though we read at the end of this chapter, or at the end of this section in verse 20, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, we see that he did so through the plague as Pharaoh made the decision to again not humble himself before the Lord. The two were working together. God's ultimate desire was that Pharaoh would humble himself. He never took his decision away. He never took his free will away. But God honored that free will choice and going, okay, if that's what you want, this is what you get. And it wasn't an issue of the plague. It was an issue of the, of the heart. And so when Moses was driven out from Pharaoh's presence, God sent this east wind that brought the locusts and they covered all the territory of Egypt and they devoured, it says, all the herbs, the trees, and the plants that had not been destroyed by the previous plague of hail. And we know that when the hail came, it came and it destroyed the early crops. And there, it made a point of telling us that there was still the, the crop of wheat and, and another crop that was coming up alongside of it that was now probably above surface of the ground. In addition to all that was left, these crops, these last crops, were now being destroyed. And I find it interesting that God said that this plague of locusts would be like unlike any that had ever been or would ever be. I've underlined that in my Bible. I, I thought that was very significant. And even though we don't know exactly why, what this plague was like or how devastating it was, that statement right there gives us an idea that it was the worst that has ever been and ever would be. And so in light of that, I did a little research about locust plagues. And, you know, some of you guys here farm, and not this year wasn't so bad. Last year, there was a lot of grasshoppers the year before. And I remember hearing some of you figuring out how to kill them things and get rid of them. And, and, and we might have even considered them to be a plague, but let me tell you, they're nothing in comparison to what we're reading about here or what a plague is really like. And when I did the research, I found out that, that these locusts are nothing like the grasshoppers that we're used to. In fact, these locusts grow up to four inches in length. Scientists have discovered that when a, 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 a locust will actually go into this swarm and and, and, and bring forth, if you will, a plague when they go into swarm mode that there's a, a serotonin that's released inside the brain of the locust and it actually causes a physical mutation. It's like they, the, their skin becomes like armor. It comes real heavy and hard and, 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 and they grow, it said the word was muscular in strength. I don't know exactly what that means, but there's even this physical change that takes place due to a chemical change in the brain. And the first thing I found out about these guys is that 
in addition to growing up to four inches in length, is that they can fly up to 100 miles per day, the swarms. Furthermore, modern-day swarms have been estimated to be in the billions. And remember, there is yet there will never be any, it says, like this in Egypt, in all of Egypt, like there was then. And due to their vast numbers, they can create a cloud that can literally block out the sun. And, and how is that so? Because, because records tell us that even in the United States, in, in 1875, there was a swarm of locusts that went through the state of Nebraska. And it was estimated to be 110 miles wide and a half a mile deep. Seems pretty unbelievable. That's not even close to the worst one. That's just here in the United States. And stuff like that doesn't happen here very often. But in places like Africa, still today, it happens regularly. In fact, in northern Africa, in 2004, there was a 150-mile-wide swarm of locusts that was estimated to be around 69 billion strong. That was according to the Chicago Tribune. Then, in 2005, there was a swarm that went through Central Asia, and the Times of London released an article about this swarm and said that the density of the swarm was 10,000 locusts per every 10 square feet. How would you like to be in the middle of that? In your houses, in your servants' houses, on you. I mean, no thank you. And when God sent this swarm upon Egypt that was unlike or was like none that had ever been or ever would be, it brought Pharaoh to his knees. It brought Pharaoh to his knees. And it says he acted with haste in verse 16. He acted with haste, and he acknowledged that he had sinned against God and pleaded for Moses to forgive his sin and to take away this death. He described the plague as death. But we see that his confession was without repentance, and it says God hardened his heart because Pharaoh would not let the children of Israel go. So in verse 21, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven. There may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which can even be felt. Have you ever been in the darkness like that? I hear that there's a thing called absolute darkness. Where it's, it's, and if you go to, who's ever been to the Carlsbad Caverns? Yeah? Have you guys, if you guys, I hear that on the tour they take you in and then they turn the lights off. And it's, it's the equivalent of being in absolute darkness and many people say that's a darkness that can be felt where it, it like lays on you like a blanket. Um, but I would suggest, and, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit, that, that what was going on here was something more than absolute darkness, that it was a spiritual kind of darkness. It was an absolute darkness, a literal darkness, but I think there was spiritual, something spiritual going on here, and I'll, I'll explain and talk about that later on. But a darkness that, that may even be felt, or was even felt. So Moses stretched out his hand, verse 22, toward heaven, and, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. And they did not see one another, nor did they rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord. 
Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, you must also give us sacrifice and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock shall go with us. Not a hoof shall left behind, shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. That's pretty cool. And we start talking about this and understanding that, that um, this applies to our lives and in our own service to the Lord. And what God calls us to. And it's, and it's really ultimately, I think, a reminder that what we've been given is, is, is all the Lord's. And wherever he calls us to go and whatever he calls us to do, we need to be willing to go and do and give whatever that is. And we go trusting that God will make it known to us in that time and in that moment. And we need to have but one thing, a willing heart. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Now, uh, there's, there's, there's a little bit of a timeline that can be distinguished as you, as you follow some of these plagues. And some of that has to do with um, the crops that are spoken about in, in regards to when they came up and which ones came up. And, 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 and you can kind of establish some kind of timeline for, for how long and how, or maybe how much time would pass in between these plagues. And as we read them, we might think that they happen like from, like as soon as the, the three days of darkness came, then boom, then, 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 or excuse me, after the, after the um, as soon as the, the plague of locusts was gone, then boom, all of a sudden this plague of darkness had come. But that, that wasn't the case. And, and actually between the, the, the hail and the fire, we see that there was probably a, uh, about four-month period of time probably between the locusts. And, 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 and we don't know exactly how long it was after these locusts left Egypt before God sent this ninth plague but the darkness that came, we know it lasted for a period of three days. And um, we also can tell, if we remember, that as God was striking Egypt, it was, he was striking Egypt with an outstretched hands with these mighty signs and wonders. We remember that one of the purposes was to prove that he was the only one true and living God. And each plague had some kind of connection to the bringing down of one of the false gods of the Egyptian people. And with this plague of darkness, as many of you know, this was a direct attack against the, the, the god Ra, the Egyptian god Ra, the false god Ra, who was the sun god and considered to be the god of gods, the, 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 the most powerful of all the Egyptian gods. And in doing so, once a god, in, in bringing this plague of darkness that lasted for three days and, and completely doing away with any kind of light, God once again proved that he, the god of the Hebrews, was greater even than the greatest of all the false gods of Egypt. But that's not why, why Pharaoh was, was so quick to act in this incident. It was because... He was, he was 
his gods were shown to be false. It wasn't like Pharaoh was like, okay, you're the one true and living God, and now I'm going to do what you say. That wasn't at all what was behind Pharaoh's heart, and we see that. Rather, it was because of the judgment that he had entered into, that he had just experienced, that, that it brought Pharaoh to this point where he was desperate. Desperate. And this thick darkness that covered Egypt was, was obviously a supernatural occurrence. It wasn't like it was some kind of extended um, eclipse or like a sand. Some people would even suggest that. You know, lots of people, even within Christendom, will take these plagues and, and try to find some kind of natural way of explaining how they occurred. And, and I think that's blasphemous as well because obviously God's the one that says he outstretched his hand and these were mighty works. These were supernatural things. They were not natural occurrences. And, and even things that occurred naturally, like a plague of locusts, we see that it was unnatural by the intensity or, or, or when or how or why they came. And so with this thick darkness that could be felt, um, it was obviously a supernatural occurrence, um, not only because it could be felt, but and, and as a result of that, some Bible scholars, as I said, would suggest that this was the result of some kind of demonic presence. And, 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 and I would say, I, I tend to agree with that in, in this sense, and I'm going to explain it in, in just a minute. But, but, but also that this was a supernatural occurrence because the fact that when this darkness came, it, according to verse 23, caused every person, and this blows my mind, it, it caused every person to remain right where they were at. So boom, from light to darkness, and wherever you were at, when that darkness fell, that's where you remained until the darkness lifted. That's pretty creepy. And, and the reason why I believe that this was some kind of demonic presence is simply because um, of these people's reaction. And I don't think they weren't moving around because they couldn't see and they were like, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to fall down the stairs I, I, or bump into somebody else. Uh, these people would have been hungry, thirsty. They would have needed to go. I mean, I just think about this in practice. They would have needed to go to the bathroom, you know, but yet, they didn't move. Where they were at, they remained. And, and, and I see this as some kind of a demonic thing taking place or, or simply because of this fact. The Bible tells us that God is light. And darkness is the absence of light. And so it seems to me that the people did not move because God had removed his presence from them. And this was played out in a very physical, tangible way with this darkness that came upon the earth. And I really think that what God was doing here was a very gracious and loving thing. Not only because it only lasted for three days, but because of the final judgment that was, that was to come was going to be this death of all the firstborn sons. And it was extreme. It was a, 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 an unmeasurable loss of human life that would come. And God values life. And, and so God, I think, removed his presence from them because what they were experiencing was as close as any person could come to experiencing hell without actually going there. Because hell, by the way, I read, read 
the Bible is not only just a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and a place of torment and a place of judgment. Ultimately, that what makes hell hell is the fact that God's not there. And people go to hell because they make a decision, they make a choice like Pharaoh after hardening their heart, after hardening their heart, after repeatedly hardening their heart to make their choice to go, I don't want to be around you, God. And what God does is he honors their decision and he removes himself from their presence for all of eternity. And I think that's what was going on here. As this darkness fell upon the earth, God being light, God being life, he took his presence away and gave these people an opportunity of, to taste, give Pharaoh an opportunity to taste this little taste of what it would be like. The Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul writes, he says, hey, I know of a guy, he's speaking of himself, he's writing the third person. I know of a guy who once was taken to the third heaven, above the, 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 the he says, basically what he's saying, above the um, stars in the, in, the, in the sky, the third heaven, out past the earth's atmosphere, into the spiritual realm. And he says, man, when I was there, I saw things that are really, it would be a crime, my paraphrase, for, for me even try to speak about to tell you. Wondrous things. And that motivated Paul, and that encouraged Paul in his walk to serve the Lord. And he endured many hardships and was faithful all the way to the end, saying, I had run the race. I had crossed the finish line. And I look to take hold of that which has been laid up before me. And God gave Paul a little taste of what was before him. And I think that God gave Pharaoh, at this point, a little bit of a taste of what was before him. So that he would repent. So that he would turn. So that he would humble himself before the Lord. And I think God does that for us a little bit even today in regards to discipline and the consequences of our own sin. When we go, Lord, I'm not going to humble myself before you in this area of my life or I'm going to live in this place of compromise. And God goes, okay, this is what it's like for you. And he allows us to reap what we've sown. He's allowed us to, to experience a little bit of that, that life not lived in submission to him, and, and, and always, every single time, maybe, maybe sooner or maybe later than sooner, because God's gracious and merciful, but always, it's never a good thing. And God does that because he wants us to turn away from these things that destroy us, these things that separate us from him, these things that hurt others around us. And God was desiring for Pharaoh to do the same thing. However, as Pharaoh called to Moses when the darkness left and agreed to let the people go, even with, even with the children of Israel, even with the, with the Hebrew people's children, which was something we remember he said, I'll, I'll, in the name of God, I'll never do. We see he was quick to relent because of this. But his submission to God and his submission to God's will was still not with a whole heart. It was not with a humble heart. A heart that was in submission to God. And Pharaoh again looked for one last compromise. How easy would it have been to say, okay, go. I'll see you when you come back. <laughs> you know? And Pharaoh wanted one last compromise and said they could not take their flocks with them this time. And this condition to go and worship God without their flocks is also a compromise, guys, that Satan would want us to make. And we're going to end with this, Justin, if you want to come up. 
this compromise or this condition to go and worship God without their flocks is also a compromise that Satan would want us to make. And what I mean by that is, is, is Satan loves to get a hold of our material wealth, of our possessions. He would like us to think and believe that they are ours, things, our money, our cars, our houses, whatever. And in doing so, that they, that they, they, they cannot be used for the Lord's or for his kingdom in a way that God asks for. When God calls us and we go and worship him and we glorify him and we serve him and God says, hey, bring your possessions with me because you know what? Bring your possessions with you because I'm going to ask you for them. To lay them down on the altar and to serve me. And the only way that we, we really come to peace with that is when we realize that we are stewards over the things that we've been given. That these flocks, like these flocks that, that the nation of Israel had, they weren't the Hebrew peoples. They were the Lord's. And they didn't know what God would require of them when they went to go serve them, but they were willing to give every one of them is that what we see here? They were willing to give every one of them is if that's what God would require in the moment. This wasn't a ploy to just go, okay, now we got our women, and now we got our children, now we got our flocks, and we're going to sneak off. That wasn't, that wasn't the idea. The idea here was that they would be willing to give whatever God commanded, whatever God asked for in that moment as they went to offer and worship and serve the Lord. And the fact of the matter is everything that we belong, we have belongs to the Lord. And Satan would like for us to hold on to that, to at least have that heart that goes, God, you can have this much, but all this other stuff I'm holding back is for me. It's for this world, for this life. That's the idea here. And yet the Bible tells us very clearly in Matthew chapter 6, where our treasure is there your heart will be also. And is our treasure being saved up for this life or is it being invested in God's kingdom and stored up for the life that's to come? And until they come to the place that we realize that it's not about 10%, it's not about gifts and offerings, it's not about, it's not about the tithe, it's about giving what God requires, what God has put on your heart. And, 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 and obviously that giving is not just a material kind of giving, but it is also with our possessions, with the things that he's blessed us with. And of course, Moses refused this compromise because he, not, he, 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 he was only concerned about being pleasing to God. And only when we realize that we are servants who are in stewardship of the things that God's entrusted to us for a time will we ever live in a way that's pleasing to God with the things that he's given us to possess, that we may lay them down at his feet. Ultimately, guys, we may think that we've won a victory by, by, by pacifying the world, by going, oh, we'll just let our kids figure it out on their own. We'll leave, we'll leave them to the world. They'll figure it out on their own. And when they come and ask me, then I'll tell them. We, we don't do prayer with our kids. We don't do devotions with our kids. We don't pray at the table. We don't, we don't, we don't um, 
tell them about Jesus. We don't drag them to church. We, we don't do all these things because we just, we just want them to learn on their own. And, and, and we think that we're just pacifying in those ways or, or, or in regards to our finances or in regards to where and how we worship and how we glorify God. But, but there's no victory in those places of compromise, no matter how it is or what it is. There's no victory in those places of compromise. And here's the reason why. Because from what we read here in this Exodus account, and in regards to our own Exodus story, our own spiritual heritage, is that, is that God demands total obedience from us. That's what it means to submit to him as Lord. Is he the Lord of our lives? There's either light or darkness. There's either lordship or there's serving self. Not only does he demand our obedience, expect us to completely obey him, he expects us to be completely separate from this world. The Bible says to be in the world, but not of the world. And sometimes we get confused with that. I heard somebody say once that, that um, Jesus never got in the water to catch fish. And we're not called to get in the water to catch the fish, so to speak. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. And God calls us to live holy lives, pure lives. And that is exampled again by this awesome illustration of how the Hebrew people, with this darkness, with the plague of locusts, with the hail, that God protected them during this time. He separated them. He set them apart to serve him, to worship him, to glorify him. And that's the life that God's called us to. So may we humble ourselves before him this morning. May we go where he's called us to go. May we serve him the way that he's called us to serve him. May we be willing to lay everything down at his feet. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for um, saving us and forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us and blessing us with so much. God, I pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. God, that we would live in humility towards you, submission to you, that you would be Lord over every area of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand. We'll worship the Lord.